Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Jason, great to be able to catch up with you. Um, you know, I think that for viewers, listeners to understand, you guys have, uh, you know, a different background and a different approach, which I think is really important. Um, you know, it's an area that not everybody knows of. Uh, is proprietary trading is your background. And it, it's, I think, one of the most interesting areas uh, of the market that, you know, through new regulations, or now they're not even new, the investment banks aren't really allowed to have anymore. But it's incredible background to really understand the markets and to to make decisions based on exactly what you see. So why don't you kind of just give a quick background in terms of what prop trading was and how you're using it for investment purposes today for your clients? Sure. So so our background um, uh, is prop trading, as you mentioned. That's just another word for running money for a bank. Uh, in our case, it was uh, Scotiabank. Um, and really, you know, trading the bank's money teaches you, you've got one client. Uh, if you lose that money, you're going to get fired. So it teaches you first and foremost, risk control uh, and risk management. And, and that is very much what we uh, see ourselves as when we run our liquid alternative mutual funds today, we use a lot of the same um, strategies and, and understanding of risk in our funds that we used while we were at, uh, at Scotiabank. Um, but really, you know, now we're applying a, uh, a quantitative or a systematic process to stock picking, both long and short. Uh, so one of the things that is very similar about, about PropDesk is you, you have to be focused on the risk. One of the things that is um, different is that now we distribute our funds to a much broader base of, of clients. We're typically in the advisor channel. So uh, advisors at the major banks and independents would use our funds, typically as a replacement for bonds or a replacement for traditional stocks where they want um, something that isn't perfectly correlated with traditional markets. Okay. And, um, you know, it's important as well, perhaps to, you know, make, make it understood that, you know, a lot of investors, uh, a lot of retail clients, uh, unaccredited investors really didn't have access to hedge funds. Um, and then you saw a lot of big banks, advisors really wanting that type of investment for their clients. And so we've got these kind of liquid alternatives is how I see the evolution, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and so that's really, you know, for anybody listening, when they hear their advisor say, well, let me give you a liquid alternative. That's what you're doing. Maybe just describe exactly kind of what that is. It's kind of the next iteration, I believe, of, of a hedge fund, but for, you know, a broader audience. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the term hedge fund um, is often used as a, as a dirty word. Um, I think that a properly run hedge fund actually is built to reduce risk, not increase it. Uh, and that ultimately is what the regulators saw as well. So uh, in 2019, they made a shift that allowed a traditional mutual fund to be enhanced with two things, the use of moderate leverage and the use of shorting. So you could actually make money if a, if a stock or a market went down, not just up. Um, and those are actually, if used properly, risk reduction tools. 
Um, so we, we had been doing that already in, as you stated, the private market. But the challenge with that is it really was only available to accredited investors or high net worth. This really um, democratized that, this, this change. And so now you'll see liquid alternative mutual funds available from a number of managers, not just us. Uh, there's there's uh, you know a dozen managers, some of them very well known, like a CI or a McKenzie or Dynamic that would would have liquid alternative mutual fund products, and we fit right into to that uh, that bucket. Um, so the big difference is they're daily liquidity, they're regulated by the regulator, all the same reporting, actually enhanced reporting versus what you would get from a traditional mutual fund um, uh, or ETF. Got it. Okay, it, it's important to kind of lay the land because I think so many people here. Have- you know, what's a mutual fund versus this versus whatever. And they're, you know, they are different and there is an evolution that takes place in terms of financial products. Okay. Um, so with that said, and, and, you know, with your background of prop trading, actually that I, I actually did equity research at William Blair back in the day and then went into institutional sales. Um, but my, my specialty was retail, specialty retail. And so I kind of had the opportunity to get on these specialized retail desk at Goldman, but I didn't do it. So that would have led to a prop uh, prop uh, position, I hope, because that really was, that was the best. I think that was one of the most interesting positions to have, period. I mean, you're trading uh, and investing the, the bank's money. I mean, that's that's the, one of the top positions when people put you in that position. Pretty yeah, exciting. It, it, no, it was a fantastic experience. You know, the, the reality is after 2008, the Lehman crisis, you know, prop desks just disappeared. They were regulated away in the U.S. and in Canada, the risk appetite just wasn't there anymore. Um, so, so you know, we never had a down year, including 2008, because we always saw ourselves as being risk managers first. Um, uh, and frankly, we weren't we weren't geniuses. We just didn't understand um, the the longer term impacts of what we were seeing, and just moved to the sidelines, just cut risk uh, during Lehman. Um, so. You know, the, the prop desk structure disappeared in Canada and, and really hasn't come back. But what it led to is a lot of former prop desk managers moving over to start their own hedge fund firms, you know, us being one of them. But I can think of three or four other um, successful managers in Canada that came from that exact same background. Hmm, interesting. So talk to us then about what you're seeing in the world today. I mean, I know prior to this uh interview, we were going to, you know, talk about SPACs and some of the meme stocks and the NFTs. Uh, Why is that of interest to you or how are you playing it? Yeah. So if we look at, if we look at, let's say this calendar year as, as a, um, a starting point, there's been a couple of major cycles, if you will. Uh, The first being in that first quarter of this year, the mania in SPACs, uh, the the mania in uh, technology stocks, particularly things like electric vehicle and battery companies and and any kind of emerging growth company. Uh, And many of these were actually taken public via a SPAC. So, you know, for the viewers who aren't familiar, a SPAC is just a pool of money um, with a sponsor or promoter. You, You give them money at $10 a share and they've got a timeline to go find something to buy. So it's almost like, you know, if you could buy the next IPO, not yet knowing what it is, the next hot IPO, uh, with a guarantee of getting your money back if you don't like the, the, the target company. That's what a SPAC is. So from, a, from our perspective as a hedge fund, what we want to do is buy SPACs below the $10 that you're guaranteed to get back. So right now, there's about 600 SPACs trading in the market. Uh, almost all of them trade below the cash value in trust. So we can't lose money on that as long as we hold it. 
to the point where they consummate a deal because we always have the option to get our money back with interest. And if we can buy it cheaply, we're buying you know, dollars at 97 cents, that's a good, that's a good strategy. It, the strategy got really unhinged though in, sorry, go ahead. Well, I just wanna ask you because you know, you, I, I've heard of some of the hedge funds um, that are kind of playing, I don't know if that's how they're doing it, the, the risk ARB aspect of the SPAC. Yes, that's exactly, so that's risk, that's the risk, that's a pure risk ARB, let's call it a rate of return. So we're just looking and saying, all right, if we buy this SPAC today and hold it for six months, we're gonna get a 4% annualized return. We can add a little bit of leverage there's no credit risk. There's no, you know, sort of downside risk like a traditional merger of deal. And there's no credit risk like a high yield bond. But it compares very favorably with both those other asset classes, right? If you could buy a bond uh, that has no credit risk for 4% annualized today, that's that's a pretty good rate of return. And that's what's happened in the SPAC market. So just walk me through this, because I know you're going to go down a different path in terms of you know, what's gone on in the SPAC market. Um, but but this is also an investment strategy that people are employing. So yeah. how does it work? So if, if someone's going to be issuing a SPAC, you're getting in on the issue? Generally not. We actually um, tend not to participate at the issue at the $10 price. We wait until it's trading in the market because more often than not, they trade below $10. Okay. What happens is the the when you buy it on issue, it comes with a stock and a warrant and then it splits into two pieces. We can buy that stock once it's trading separately from the warrant, and we can typically buy it you know, reasonably well below the, the $10 price. So 970, 975, and get that guaranteed 25 cents between now and when they find a deal. If they can't find a deal, they're forced to unwind it, we get our money back. If they find a deal and it's a lousy one, we get our money back. If they find a deal and it's a great one, Maybe it trades to $12, $13, $20, uh, like we saw in Q1, and we can sell it in the market at a better price than that. So, so the normal trade is just, all you really want is that little rate of return. Q1, it went um, uh, ballistic to the upside, where you were seeing every deal announcement, no matter how bad the, the company, um, trading at a massive premium, right? We saw some SPACs trade at 30, 40, $50, with only $10 in cash. Right, so, so the buyer, who's buying it at $50 a share? Unfortunately, the retail bag holder, right? It is someone who is looking at this new company and saying, I love that this is the next Tesla, right? And, and, and or I love this is the next Virgin Galactic or DraftKings. And there have been some really good businesses come out of SPACs and a lot of very bad businesses that have come out of SPACs. Um, so, you know, from a pure art perspective, the arbitrageurs were sellers of, of all those pops. But the unfortunate part is the average retail investor paid up for these, and most of those are well, well, well below those prices now. Hmm. And so, um, when a SPAC though would come to market, when a SPAC comes to market, you're going to wait to buy it at less than the issue price of ten ten dollars. Um, but if do you all, I guess it sounds like you don't always get that chance. Not always. People get excited about who the money manager might be, but they don't even announce. They obviously don't like for it to trade at fifty bucks. It's really just trading on the, uh, you know, on the belief that the person who's issuing it is going to be buying some great company because they don't even already announce the deals most of the time. Yeah, so so you're right. In Q Q four Q one, you saw exactly. Like take Bill Ackman's SPAC for an example, largest SPAC ever done um, in terms of cash raised. 
you know, obviously Bill, Bill Ackman has, has, a, has a reputation that supports that. That SPAC traded, you know, I want to say 30% above its cash value before he had found anything, 30, 40%. Ultimately, as he didn't find anything and then he had a failed deal, that traded all the way back to cash value. And today you can buy it for slightly below cash value. So you're right, that traded purely on the prospect. That's not something we're interested in at all. Um, the other thing that, that happened though is uh, people were finding deals. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of something like um, uh, Lucid. So Lucid is the next Tesla, right? And, and people would find the, uh, a, a real deal and the stock would then trade up to, to $50 just on the prospect that Lucid was gonna become the next Tesla. So there was a real mania in these growth type companies. Uh, and we saw that it was, it coincided with the meme stocks taking off. It coincided with the uh, Melvin Capital blowing up, being short these stocks. It coincided with Archegos, the family office that Bill Huang um, uh, blowing his fund up. So, you know, there was a real mania in, in the kind of ended kind of late March, early April. Um, and, and then the market has changed since then. It's gone on to more uh, quality stocks. And the hedge funds who are long and short, like us, have had a, an easier time, if you will, managing the short side of our book, um, because it seems like that speculation has gone on to greener pastures. Hmm. Where's it gone? My personal view is two things have happened. People have returned to work. Um, so, you know, serve checks or unemployment benefits have, have run out. Sports betting has come back. Um, you know, if you think of the pandemic, you know, a lot of people sitting at home, uh, not necessarily going to, to jobs or working from home and receiving stimulus checks. So there was a lot of uh, excess speculative money, if you will, used for, 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 you know, that had gone away from those two things. They're back. But the other thing that seems to be attracting um, this sort of retail spec flow is crypto again, crypto and, and NFTs, non-fungible uh, tokens. So, you know, I describe it as a Ponzi scheme built on a Ponzi scheme, but, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm 50 now or I will be this year. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm truly out of touch, but when uh, a, a digital image of a rock is, is trading at $2 million, I'd say we've reached the boundaries of, of rampant speculation. Yeah. Well, and, and that that's my view as, as well. Um, but but Jason, you know, when you hear people talk about the NFTs, um, they seem to describe it. And, you know, I don't pay too, too much attention to it because it's something that just inherently doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I like, you know, doing more hard equity research. But I guess the their explanation is, well, you know, if you're a famous person and they kind of want a piece of you or a slice of you in whatever that means, like, I don't know, if it's your artwork or your trophy, you technically own part of that trophy. I mean, that it's, it's a way to kind of divide assets that somebody might have. Yeah, it, that's, that's fair. I mean, you could you could view it as digital art, right? I mean, look, uh, uh, a banana duct tape to a wall sold for $120,000 at, at the Miami Art Show a number of years ago. So, so we can we can say yes. We understand that the art market um, can be can have its own mania. Um, NFTs you could view them as a form of digital art, and and the values in the whatever someone wants to pay for it. Yeah. Um, I, I think the 
The challenge I have with it is it actually isn't anything unique. Really, what you're getting is your, your name, effectively, a digital code on a ledger on someone's website that says you're the true owner of this. Um, the, the value really is in the ability to, to turn around and sell these, to trade these. And that's why this market, you look at OpenSea and, and some of these NFT marketplaces, the volumes have exploded. It is the latest toy, if you will, for, for rampant speculation. Um, I, can, I see now that NFTs are already starting to, to crash already in some cases. So, you know, there's just been a massive supply of digital images, who would have figured, because they're, they can be generated on the fly. And if you can sell it for more than a penny, you're doing pretty well. Um, you know, it's, it's just, but it, to me, it's just another example of the, the unintended consequences of a lot of money in the system um, uh, and, and a lot of money being put into individual hands as a consequence of trying to get out of this pandemic. It's what? It's fueled speculation and a lot of asset classes. Yeah. And, and so, um, and we briefly mentioned the cryptocurrency world. Where, where do you stand on that right now? We're, we're nowhere. I'm like you. It is, um, we have huge issues with it structurally. You know, when you start to dig under the hood and, and not to say that digital versions of currency aren't, don't have some appeal. They, they really, to us, don't solve any problems that haven't already been solved. Uh, we can transfer money very easily today. Certainly, they might reduce friction costs, but they haven't yet. Um, uh, they're they're terrible for the environment. I don't care what anyone says. It's a it's a particularly you know um, Bitcoin and these uh, uh, proof of work um, uh, coins that that actually require a huge amount of energy to produce. So it, conceptually, you can you can understand there can be benefits from it, but I yet to see a business plan in crypto that doesn't rely at its core on the asset class going up perpetually, right? And that to me is, is, not, a, is not a sound reason for, for um, it, it just, again, sounds like another way to say speculation. No one's shown me a business plan where Bitcoin can just be flat and, and you know, they, there's, a, there's a, an opportunity for you know, people to make money. They all seem to rely on this perpetual motion machine that, that goes up. Yeah. Well, and um, I actually am involved in crypto, not just not the NFTs. <laughs> um, so, you know, with all of that said, and you've got a long short book as well, how, where are you investing? What do you, what do you feel comfortable in today? Especially because, you know, you've talked about the amount of liquidity out there that's increased uh, asset prices across the board, it sounds. And that I would agree with. Um, and, and then you've got people with Tina, you know, there is no alternative. You've got people who believing who are believing that because of COVID, the, the business cycle will be elongated even more. You've got people who believe that there's no way any central bank in the world can raise interest rates to such a degree because they won't be able to, uh, uh, you know, afford the interest payments. So that kind of lends itself to, you know, this continued lower for longer. What do you do in that? How, what do you guys yeah. do? So, so the benefit of being long and short, and I fully agree, the market is in an absolute um, aggregate manner, very overvalued, but there are absolute pockets of, of you know, reasonable value and absolute pockets of, of, of excess. The benefit of being long and short is that 
We're not as concerned with the overall market valuation. We care about relative valuations. So if we can find a stock that's reasonably priced, like a, a slightly more cyclical financial uh, or a lumber stock or a steel producer or you know potentially an energy producer, uh, those are the things that sort of float to the, the, the top of the pack today. And we can be um, short something that is overvalued or might be subject to a different risk, you know, like a utility where they're already expensive or a consumer staple, um, they're already expensive. And if we do get into a period of inflation where rates do go up even marginally, those, those companies are gonna be, uh, you know, uh, have more risk of multiple contraction. So if we, can, if we can balance a portfolio where we're long things that are cheap in an uptrend and relatively stable, short things that are expensive in a downtrend and relatively volatile, that's how we structure our book. Um, and we come at it from a quantitative perspective. We're not stock pickers in the traditional sense. We want to own a basket of stocks that are cheap rising and stable. And we want to short a basket of stocks that are the opposite of that. And that changes over time. The, the cohort of what is in that basket changes over time as the cycle moves through the market. So when you talk about cheap rising and momentum or cheap momentum and rising, oh. I think, um, you know, th those are the factors that you look at. Um, how are you, I'm just curious, because back in the day when I did institutional equity sales, um, I did cover momentum money managers. It's yeah. almost kind of, you don't even hear about them really today, I don't think. Um, but so what do you use to judge momentum if I'm using it even in the right way? Yep, you're using exactly correct. So so we, and you're right, I, I, when I was in Scotia, we also covered clients and there were a number of, of um, I would call them momentum shops. You knew that they were gonna be buying when the price went higher, right? Not the opposite. Um, and then you have value managers that were gonna be buying as the price goes lower. And those are your two sort of big cohorts. Um, so for us, we look at momentum uh, in developed markets like the US, it's really, it's as simple as looking at the last nine to 12 months of price performance. Stocks that have had the best return over that period have high momentum. Stocks with the lowest returns have low momentum. In more emerging markets, and I'll actually put Canada and Australia in that bucket because of our resource bias, um, we trade more like an emerging market. You have to shorten up that timeline. So we're looking more at six month momentum because the cycles can move very quickly. And you've seen it, you know, energy stocks bottom, and then they very quickly turn the corner and rally. If you're too slow to start to change positioning, you can get caught doing that, particularly if you're long and short. So that's momentum. And then we pair that with value. So we want, and value for us is very similar to traditional. We look at things like price to free cash flow, return on equity, what's the balance sheet, what's its earnings, what's its dividend yield. So we're trying to find that blend of a company that is reasonably priced and in an uptrend um, because you know stocks in an uptrend tend to attract more money flow stocks in a downtrend tend to have people selling them it just it just is what it is and if you can find reasonably priced stocks in an uptrend then that's our sweet spot got it so um going back to you mentioned steel stocks yep stelco would be a perfect example of that right now stelco okay or new core yes what's that or Nucor in the U.S. would be another example. Two stocks we do own um, that are that, that fit that bucket of being reasonably priced and in an uptrend. And so I'm curious. I actually own Stelco. I've, I bought it probably two years ago at maybe 15 nice. bucks. 
Yeah. Yeah. At some point, still was going to work. So, um, <laughs> but, and, and I used to cover steel stocks very closely with the Goldman analyst, um, Aldo Mazzaferro. Uh, I don't know if you've ever come across him, but he was a great steel oh. analyst. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, but I am curious because um, obviously steel got hit yesterday. Everything got hit yesterday uh, with the Evergrande China developer under pressure. Um, it is causing some people to think that China might pull back a little bit on their developers and their growth. And that, of course, would impact, you know, steel and aluminum going forward. What do you say to that? Well, I, I think that is that is the risk for sure, is that property developers, um, uh, that that cycle in China is is slowing. And, and Evergrande is, is obviously the, the, you know, the 800 pound gorilla. But I, our, our general view is that we are in an inflationary period, and obviously the Fed has acknowledged it, but their view is that it's transitory. Our view is that it's transitory for longer, and that actually is a Goldman a Goldman line, right? It's not, it's not ours, but we agree. It, it, we think that a lot of these um, issues that are causing inflation are not transitory. Labor is not necessarily transitory. Once you start raising uh, uh, wages to, to bring workers on, it's really difficult to go backwards the other way. Um, it, that becomes a, a more permanent uh, um, uh, cost base and a permanent source of inflation. So, uh, you know, all inflation is transitory, but if it goes for longer, uh, you know, you've got the pressure of potentially higher rates, and we think you've got an extended cyclical cycle as part of that. We think the, the weakness in cyclicals from that really started in April is much to do about two things, the Fed talking about tapering uh, and the Delta variant. I think both of those are going to be resolved or are in the process of being re resolved as we speak. We're going to hear from the Fed tomorrow. I think they are going to announce uh, the timeline for a taper. The market's already ready for it. And taper does not equal tighten. And that's, that's the key. They went to great pains to say that. Uh, the other thing is Delta has already started to roll over in the U.S., where, where it's probably the most impactful. Um, so I think this sort of growth scare, you know, we might be looking past it for one more cyclical run. Uh, and that'll benefit steel stocks, it'll benefit copper, uh, it may very well benefit lumber. Um, you know, there's, companies have an awful lot of cash and they have been uh, pretty stingy on the capital spend. So one of the ways to, if you're getting margin squeezed or your labor costs are going up, one of the things you can do as a company is spend on capital uh, and get productivity gains. And we think there's a real, there's a real chance that, that, that that'll happen. Um, so you don't necessarily get dragged into stagflation. It's a risk, but you can you can actually be growing alongside the inflationary pressures on your on your cost side. So if you think that um, inflation will be transitory, but for a longer period of time, um, what do you think would be the short to that trade? In the sense that if people are most people are, or the media has been talking about, it, you know, transitory is a couple months. You know, if it goes on for you know, two to three years, there are going to be certain businesses, individuals, and sectors that get structured away that can't can't wait out the game uh, in terms of a higher interest rate environment or higher cost. Who yeah. have you looked at that side of the trade, and who would that be? So, you know, there was actually an excellent study that was published back in May, and it was really what works during inflationary times. It went back to, it was an academic study, it went back to 1926 and looked at all the sectors and all the strategies in terms of what worked, what didn't. And it was pretty consistent, and it makes common sense. Anything that has pricing power 
um, uh, or as a commodity producer or servicing commodity producers. So Canada fits well. There's a lot of industries that either directly or indirectly service commodity producers. They do well. And that's energy, that's materials, uh, industrials to a degree if, they're, if they've got the right, you know, if it's a, um, a well completion company or something like that that's servicing that industry. What does really poorly are consumer staples and expensive uh, growth stocks. And it's because you get overall multiple contraction. And, and so the companies that are most exposed to multiple contraction are the ones with the highest multiples already. So it, it really, the other side of that trade becomes these expensive growth stocks. Um, you don't, again, we won't short uh, Shopify just because it's expensive. It, it has to roll over as well, has to be in a downtrend. That really hasn't happened yet for a lot of these, but you can kind of see the writing might be on the wall of, of that trade. Um, that it, and, and inflation would be a catalyst to drive that. Uh, the other, you know, small caps, you want to generally avoid smaller cap companies. Uh, they don't have the ability to control pricing uh, on, their, on their supplies. Um, so they do get squeezed more than, than the mega cap. Um, and then interestingly, the, and this obviously is a shameless plug for our strategies, uh, relative value strategies or, or long short momentum strategies do pretty well because they can get long things that do well during inflation and get short the things that don't. And that trend tends to be stickier. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't disappear that quickly. And so that being a momentum investor actually makes sense. Uh, the other strategy, which we don't run, but does work really well, are CTAs, the old commodity trading advisors. Um, that is kind of their perfect environment is an inflationary one. So that's kind of a, a, a mishmash of all the things that, that okay. work. I don't feel like I've seen any CTAs out for a while. You sure haven't because they have lost money for five years in a row. Um, wow. But you know, that, that in some ways is the opportunity. If you can find the survivor <laughs> that actually made it through the last five years of, of what, yeah. what has been a, a tough bear market for CTAs, they might be, they may have a place in your portfolio now. Got it. Um, and I don't want to take too much more of your time, but um, you did mention lumber stocks. Which ones do you like here? And Obviously, they had a huge run-up. Then they pulled back. You know, some great analysts were expecting them to pull back. Where are they now? I haven't looked for a while. So the share prices have held in a lot better. They're called, on average, 15 to 20% off their highs. But those highs are obviously, you know, 300% off, off their, their COVID lows. Um, so, you know, what, what's interesting is the lumber prices, the spot market ran up. We all know, like, crazy. It became a popular theme on Twitter to talk about, you know, I'm rich, I've got a pile of broken up lumber. Um, those prices have come back to earth. But I think what people, the, the spot lumber prices have, but I think what people should look at is spot lumber's trading today around $600. Um, that is higher than any previous peak of any other cycle. So it looks like they've come off a long way, but at $600, a company like Canfor cash flows its entire market cap in 18 months. So you don't need, and you know, these companies have all been paying down their debt. Frankly, you can buy most of them, whether it's West Fraser or Interfor or Canfor, uh, they all look cheap. They all look like they're uh, either paying down debt or buying back shares like crazy. If you just get a little bit of an extended cycle, you're gonna see more of that. Special dividends, potentially M&A. Um, uh, and, and that's kind of been our view is that the, that cycle's not over yet. And, and they're still, even at these levels, because they're still, yes, they're off their highs, but they're way off their lows. 
um, historically, this is an okay time to step into those names? You have to believe that we're going to get that inflation for longer. Um, uh, but, you know, and we do, and we think the, the, the market is set up for that. But even if they don't, you're buying companies with, with uh, basically no debt in many cases, cash on the balance sheet, trading at two or three times EBITDA. I mean, they're exceedingly cheap. Now, they're trading on backwards looking EBITDA that is, that is blockbuster, but even forward, they're trading at four or five times EBITDA uh, if you just use the analyst consensus. Uh, and, and in general, I think the analyst consensus is probably a little more uh, bearish than what spot price is telling you. Got it. And, and just lastly, in terms of some of the shorts out there, Tesla is one. Are you short it now? Uh, so Tesla, Tesla is right. It, we are short it. It's if you look at its price chart, it's right at the cusp of starting to roll over on a momentum basis. It, it fought back in the last few months. So so we'll see. We tend to be um, we're relatively fast, you know, let's call it an itchy trigger finger when it comes to our shorts. We won't let them run against us for too long before they get covered and we, we rotate to something else. Uh, so Tesla is still a short. We'll see if that sticks. But, but there's your perfect example of a thematic stock. No question, it hits all the right themes. Uh, they, they make very good cars, but it's an extremely expensive stock. And they now have a ton of competition coming to market in terms of uh, new EV companies both traditional automakers and, and new ones. Um, so they, they, they're not, they don't have the run of the market anymore at very, very expensive valuations. I mean, they're worth more than every other car maker put together. Uh, and you know, does that make sense for an automaker that sells less than 2% of global autos? It's, it's pretty tough math. Yeah. Um, just, just to wrap it up, um, you, know, you guys obviously have your approach. Um, it sounds like, you know, almost regardless of what's going on in the world, because your approach allows you to be nimble. Um, but what would your kind of message to viewers who obviously don't have your background be as it relates to thinking about the market and maybe some of the volatility that we might see, even just given, given the seasonality? Yeah, look, I mean, for, for, the, for the average client, I actually think the market is the best served by doing what, you know, Warren Buffett says, just go buy a cheap index fund, right? I mean, don't you don't need to pay high fees for regular market exposure. So find the cheapest, um, uh, you know, uh, easiest to, to buy and tuck away exposure to index funds. That, you know, and that applies to the, the bond market as well. And that should form the core of anyone's long-term portfolio, 50, 60 plus percent. And then I think you look to um, either active managers or if, if it's a do-it-yourself investor, then I think you, you start allocating to things that don't look like the rest of the stock market. And that's you know, where alternative funds fit in. It's where um, alternative asset classes can fit in. Um, uh, you know, so it's, but what you don't want to do is just pay high fees for a bunch of products that look exactly like what you just bought cheaply. Right. So, so a lot of traditional long only mutual funds, unfortunately, fall into that bucket. You might pay 2%, but all you're really getting is the same thing you bought at, at 50 basis points through your, through your ETF. Um, and I actually think that too few people use advisors. Right. I think actually having an advisor, um, they are, their job is as much to keep you on course as it is to recommend investments. Right. And, and having someone to, uh, hold investors' hands in a March of 2020 and not turn a temporary situation into a permanent one. In other words, selling when you absolutely shouldn't. 
I think there's actually a lot of value in an advisor and, and they don't always, uh, you know, get the credit for that, but, but they, they, you know, they charge a fee, but I actually do think they're worth that fee. Yeah. No, that's well said. I mean, and they do sit in front of the screen every day, different capacity than what you're doing. Um, you know, in terms of your sophistication, but, um, but at least they're on top of it and watching everything for, for the client, because it, it is amazing how many people I know who, you know, really, you know, it's not their business. It's not their love. So they're not, they're really not up to date. Right. So. Yeah, right. if it's, and if it's not, keep it really simple. Keep it simple and cheap. If it is your love, then you can start getting more more complex and, and looking at you know other strategies. But but yeah, my advice for the average investor is just keep it simple. <laughs> okay, uh, Jason, we'll leave it there. Great to uh, to speak with you and get caught up in terms of what you guys are doing and how you're doing it. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you.